Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week, the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Happy birthday, Megan. Happy birthday, Tegan. (laughs) (laughs) By the time you all listen to this, it will have been my birthday two days ago. And while we're recording this right now, it was Megan's birthday yesterday. Woohoo. Welcome to our birthday special. Yeah, welcome to the birthday special. Today we got to pick our own murders and the countries <laughs> we got to pick our own murders that sounds really horrible but no we got to pick where we went instead of having to drop from a hat this yeah. time so i'm really excited um so i guess before we jump into everything um rate review subscribe follow us on instagram send megan some happy birthday messages Send Tegan some happy birthday messages. Um, share us with your friends as our birthday present. We really appreciate it. Okay, so I think it's Megan's turn to start this week. So do you want to yeah, jump baby. right on into it? I'm up first. Yep. Okay, let's go. So I think you might know this case, Tegan, because I know a couple podcasts that we listened to covered it but a long time ago. Um my murder today is from Italy, and it is the murder of Yara Gambarazio or Gambarizio. I'm not sure if I know it. I don't know it by name, but probably once you start telling the story. You made me freak out a little bit there because my story is also from a podcast that we both listened to from a while ago, and I was like, <laughs> okay, but let's get into it. Yeah, don't worry. Tegan messaged me. She's like, oh yeah, mine, mine is from this country, and I'm like, okay, that's good. Mine's not from there. So my sources for today are a 2015 The Guardian article by Tobias Jones, Wikipedia, a 2016 Guardian article by Rosie Scammell, and then another Guardian article by Rosie Scammell from 2015. So on November 26, 2010, at 6.44 p.m., 13-year-old Yara Gambarasio left her gymnastics gym to walk the 700 meters or about 10 minutes home. Yara was born on May 21st, 1997, and was an avid gymnast. She was at her gymnastics gym to drop just drop off of a boombox and do some training, and was to head home straight after. Yara lived with her family in the town of Brembati di Sopra in northern Italy, about 45 kilometers or an hour's drive north of Milan. The town was small with only about 7,000 people, but an area of like an area of 4.3 square kilometers or two square miles. That's what Wikipedia said, uh, which seems really tiny. Yeah, that seems very small. I can't like picture things in my head to realize how big they are, but still to me, that seems like a very small piece of land. Yeah, I think like four kilometers you can walk in less than an hour. Yeah, that's actually absurd. (laughs) Yeah. But it's four square kilometers, so, you know. Yara's family was well-known and respected in their town, and her father, Fulvio, was an architect whose family had lived in the town for over three generations. Yara's mother, Maura, was a teacher in a nearby town. 
Yara had three siblings, an older sister, and two younger brothers. Yara should have been home for dinner that night, but about 7 p.m., but at about 7 p.m., Yara was still not home. At 7.11 p.m., Yara's mom called Yara on her cell phone, but Yara did not pick up. In fact, the call went straight to voicemail. After 20 minutes more of waiting, Yara's father called the police and the call was dispatched to the next town over because Brambati di Sopra was so small. Luckily, the police officer on the other end of the line, Letizia Ruggeri, did not treat Yara as a runaway and immediately dispatched not just the police, but the carabinieri, or the military police, as well. Letizia Ruggeri will become a our key investigator in this case, so keep that uh, name up in your brain. Okay, will do. The police began searching for Yara. They spoke to her gymnastics coach, and the coach confirmed Yara had been at the gym earlier and left around 6.45 p.m. The police spoke to Yara's friends and determined that the last known communication from Yara was at 6.44 p.m., the day of her disappearance, when she sent a text to her friend Martina, making plans to meet up on the coming Sunday morning. No other evidence came up in this initial search. Some people said that they may have seen two men standing near a red car outside the gym talking to a girl, but nobody was really sure exactly what they saw and there was like nothing else to go on. So police set up a more thorough search. This search involved hundreds of volunteers throughout the surrounding area in addition to tracking dogs, which were given her scent. These dogs revealed something quite surprising. They tracked Yara's scent not towards her house from the gym, but in the opposite direction. After checking her cell phone records, investigators determined that it had pinged in the town of Mapello, or the articles described Mapello as like a little hamlet, so maybe it's a neighborhood of Brambati di Sopra. And this was just up the road from Yara's home. At 6.49 p.m., the evening of her disappearance. So just four minutes after she had left the gym, her her cell phone pinged in Mapello, which was up the road the way that the dogs had tracked her scent. That's suspicious. That's weird. After the search, there were there was no new information that came up, so naturally the investigators turned to look into Yara's family. Even though nothing so far indicated their family had anything to do with her her disappearance her parents were both home when she went missing her phone pinged away from home uh ruggieri had to do her due diligence in the investigation so unsurprisingly nothing came up in this lead either when looking into the gambaracios the search for yara continued into december and january ruggieri put wiretaps on hundreds of locals phones hoping to gain some sort of new information She also attempted to track down everyone whose cell phone pinged in Yara's hometown on the day of her disappearance, over 15,000 different phones. This briefly spotlighted a suspect, but he was quickly ruled out. That's crazy that they had the ability to wiretap that many people. Like, I thought that, like, with wiretapping, like, you had to, like, have, like, a good reason to tap, not just, like, "Hmm, maybe we'll grab some information from a hundred different phone lines. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought when I was reading that as well. I was like, that's a lot of, because at least here I would think you'd need a warrant. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. So either they had a really liberal judge or something's different, or maybe it's just a translation thing. Yeah. And they didn't actually wiretap. They just like double checked everyone. Yeah, maybe. So the longer 
they went without any new information on the case, the more the media began to pay attention. The case was sensationalized across Italy, and infuriatingly, Yara's family had to hide from the media as cameras descended on their town and their house. Another reason why the case was sensationalized was... So this is a little bit... I've had to kind of piece this together, but from the articles that I read, it seems like this region of Italy is like a little bit separate. There's a lot of history and culture specific to this like town and region. Like it's in the north of Italy in the mountains. So it holds like its own culture and like place names are different for people who live there. Like people who live there call the town like something in a different dialect to what the rest of Italy calls it. And it seems like they're a little bit wary of outsiders and very traditional. As one article also stated, quote, some locals talk without irony of this being a land of streche, of witches, who steal or poison young children, unquote. That's crazy. All that reminds me of right now is it Iceland who believes that they, there's tiny elves everywhere. Like, that's the vibe that I get. (laughs) Also, does this case have something to do with the Vatican? No. Okay, then it's not the case that I'm thinking of. That would be cool. What case is that? Oh my goodness. (laughs) I think it's something to do... Like, there was another girl who disappeared in Italy that MFM covered. And there... I just remember them, like... There were, like, a whole bunch of links to the Vatican? Yeah. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I don't know this story, I don't think. Okay. It might sound more familiar as we get further down. Yeah, so hopefully I explained that right if anyone lives in this region. Hopefully I didn't get it wrong, but it seems like it's it's a little bit closed off, traditional, wary of outsiders, and, you know, individualistic to a lot of other areas of Italy. So Yara's family sadly had to spend Christmas without Yara that year. They went without news for three months. On February 26, 2011, exactly three months after Yara's disappearance, a man was flying his radio-controlled airplane in the town of Cignolo di Sola, 10 kilometers away from Brembati di Sopra. The area where he was flying was like an industrial-ish area close to the town enough, like close to the town of Cignolo di Sola enough that there were some shops and bars nearby as well, though, so... The man began to have some issues with his airplane, so he landed it in the field and walked out to get it. As he walked, however, he came across the body of Yara Gambarasio. Yara's body was found fairly decomposed, but everything but her cell phone was accounted for. In the autopsy, there were traces of lime found in Yara's lungs and jute, which is a fiber used to make rope, on her clothes. Yara, thankfully, had no signs of sexual assault, but had multiple, like, cuts or stab wounds. The coroner determined that the cause of death was not stab wounds, but instead exposure. So Yara had been attacked and left out there to die. That's so horrible. Mm-hmm. Did she have lime in her lungs because, um, like, they put lime on her to decompose her? Or... I don't think so. I didn't see anything about that. I think it's more like they think she was around somewhere that had lime and breathed it in. Okay. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if, um, I'm sure everybody knows, but if you don't know, lime helps decompose <laughs> bodies. More Quicker. murder tips with Tegan. Yeah. You should welcome. just be called murder tips with Tegan. 
<laughs> with some I'm stories sure along the way. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, though, investigators were able to recover DNA, two samples from the same donor, from Yara's clothing and her cell phone battery. The DNA did not match any of the DNA they already had in their system, but investigators figured that the suspect might work in construction due to the traces of jute and lime uh, on Yara. So they named their suspect Ignoto Uno, or Unknown One. Would you prefer I call it Ignoto Uno or Unknown One, Tegan? I don't know, because Unknown One kind of feels like it should be like a Marvel movie. (laughs) Okay, I'll call it Ignoto Uno. No, it sounds more fancy and a little bit more mysterious. Yeah, and also definitely more, uh, it jumps out at you more when I'm speaking, so you'll especially notice it. Yeah. So, Rogeri and her team then began a massive investigation. They tested everyone they could think possible for DNA. Yara's family members, her friends from school, people in the community. They audited phone records comparing those who had been in Brimbanti di Sopra the day of Yara's abduction with those who had, had then been in Cignolo di Sola as well. And then taking DNA samples from anyone whose phone records matched this. Ruggeri seemed to hit a dead end with this as well, though. By May 2011, when Yara's funeral was held, they still had no leads in her murder case. So Yara's funeral was massive, held in her gymnastics gym. It attracted national attention and the whole country mourned. Um, People had been following this case since, like, back in November, so the entire investigation was sounds like it was highly publicized within Italian media and something I read said that Italian media is obsessed with like true crime so they're constantly covering cases like this and it gets sensationalized I mean that happens other places in Italy but so I would even argue that like every culture is obsessed with true crime in one way or another it's just we don't Mm -hmm. like to say that we're true crime obsessed but we're always intrigued about that kind of stuff. So that's what yeah, gets like, covered on the news all the time. Yeah, I think it's like a morbid fascination. But more so than that, it's like, a, what happened to her? How can I make sure that doesn't happen to me? Yeah. It's like a survival. Are you thing. talking about the TikTok that you sent me this morning? Did I? Yeah. Probably. About how um, a lot of people think that it's weird that women watch true crime to relax but it's really information that you gain as like a survival uh so that you don't have that situation happen to you yeah i mean i've always thought that when i'm interested in it because i'm like okay well that happened to this girl so now i know like to be wary of situations like that yeah no it just has reaffirmed yeah no totally agree yeah and that girl had her master's degree and that was her thesis so it's not like i'm just reiterating information (laughs) That I don't know anything about. Uh. Yeah, it's uh, actually science. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Com- welcome to our TED Talk and goodbye. So Yara's case attracted so much attention that the president of Italy even attended her funeral and gave a condolence speech at the funeral. Which I was kind of thinking like, that's nice, but if Justin Trudeau were to come to my younger sister's funeral and make a speech, I'd be like, this isn't about you, buddy get out of here. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. I think, like, 
there's a line that gets drawn with that kind of stuff. Having him attend would be nice and coming up and like shaking the family's hand, but not like giving a speech because then it takes it away from you. Yeah, from it's like, okay, Nora. eyes on me now and yeah. not the actual situation. And then I'd be worried like, oh, well, is he just trying to get reelected? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> back to the investigation. So since Ruggieri still had no new information six months after the murder, she took a huge leap of faith and set her focus on a new area. Near where Yara's body was found was a nightclub. Because Ruggieri knew that murderers often stick to where they're comfortable in places they know, she hoped that maybe looking into this nearby nightclub might garner some leads. So what the police did was they then began to DNA test everyone who went into the nightclub on Fridays and Saturdays. So like before entering the club, you would like pay your cover fee get your DNA swabbed, and go into the club. This is starting to sound familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So, and Ruggieri said throughout the whole investigation, she didn't have any issues getting DNA. Like, she didn't have to get a warrant for any DNA because everyone just gave it voluntarily. Yeah. So, I just thought, that's funny. Like, swabbing everyone's cheek who's standing outside the nightclub. Uh, This was, like, kind of, it sounded kind of like a little prestigious nightclub as well because members needed a membership, like, people needed a membership card before getting, going in, so that meant that it would be really easy for police to track people down. Yeah, that's kind of cool, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there anywhere like that that I know of? It's literally like a nightclub, then. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) So... Luckily enough, one of these samples was almost a match, a familial match. The man who had matched, whose DNA had matched with Ignoto Uno, was named Damiano Girinoni. He was from the region, but had been in South America during Yara's disappearance and murder, so discounted him as a suspect. When they looked into his family, though, they found some stunning information. Girinoni's mother, Aurora Zani, had worked for Yara's family for a decade as domestic staff, going to work in Yara's home twice a week when Yara was little. Aurora still had a really good relationship with Yara's family, so she was absolutely shocked to have been linked to their daughter's murder. Investigators tapped Aurora's phone and, and Girinoni's phone lines, hoping to get new information for months, investigators pretty much harassed these two for information, it seemed like. But th- at the end of the summer in 2011, Ruggieri finally decided it must have just been a coincidence and had to stop looking into them as suspects. After a year and literally thousands of DNA tests, but still nothing, Ruggieri was really under intense pressure and criticism from everyone. The locals, politicians, the media, other police departments. People were calling for her resignation. Exasperated and not willing to give up, Ruggieri turned back to looking into the Damien Girinoni family tree, trying to identify the familial DNA. Her team traced the family history back all the way to the year 1716, trying to identify any other distant relatives to test. That's insane. That's so... That's like 300 years. I know. It's crazy. Almost exactly 300 years. Yeah. Wow. So just like Yara's family, the Grinoni family had been in the region for generations, centuries even. Ruggieri traced the Grinoni family tree roots to the village of Gorno, which was 45 minutes away from Brembanti di Sopra. 
Ruggieri visited Gorno and tried to get in contact with these distant relatives. It turned out that Damiano Guirinoni's uncle lived in this village, but he had died back in 1999. The uncle, Giuseppe Guirinoni, still had a widow in the town though, so the police paid her a visit and were able to sample items in the house for his DNA. Um, Giuseppe was a bus driver and they found a letter of him reapplying for his driver's license and he'd licked two of the stamps and they were able to lift the DNA from these two stamps. I remember this now. This story Mm -hmm. is crazy. I'm glad you picked it. So they were able to get Giuseppe's DNA and his DNA was the perfect paternal match for their suspect, Ignoto Uno. They immediately went to test Giuseppe's two sons for DNA. One of them was the killer. Finally, after over a year of searching, the police had caught their suspect. The only problem, though, was that neither of his sons matched the DNA of Ignoto Uno, and neither of them had any sons either. Ruggieri just was at yet another dead end. So, Ruggieri now had to find the illegitimate child of Giuseppe, because that was now the only explanation. Ruggieri now had to find the mother of the suspect in order to find Yara's killer. The police ran around testing even more people for DNA now, but this time it was middle-aged to older women who had had an illegitimate child about 40 years prior. They also began chatting up the locals. Small towns, people talk, someone might know something, someone might know if Giuseppe was very fond of a certain woman in town, hoping to find out some sort of information. It was now the spring of 2012, over a year after Yara's murder. So, locals told police that Giuseppe had a routine of going to this one specific spa resort every May. He would go there for two weeks without his wife, like, every year. They figured he must have been going here with a mistress or have had an affair while there. So, investigators pulled the spa's guest records and reviewed the files for every... every single single woman who stayed there at the same time as Giuseppe going back all the way to the 1960s when he first started going there. Nothing came up from this though either and investigators started to realize that they might not be looking for a single woman. They might need to look for a married woman which so scandalous. So by this time, it was now 2013, one of Ruggieri's team, lead team members, Marshal Giovanni Mosserino, or Mocherino, had been digging through paper records and chatting to people in town trying to get any gossip that might lead to a break in the case. When doing so, he noticed that someone had come forward to the press a while back about Giuseppe getting a girl, quote, in trouble about 40 odd years ago. Mosserino kept his kept following this lead, and eventually in 2014, he got a name, Esther Arzufi. Esther had been Giuseppe's neighbor in the 1960s. She was in her early 20s in the 60s at that time, and married to a man that seemed not to be very attentive towards her, is what articles said. She had ridden Giuseppe's bus to work every day. Investigators immediately checked if they had taken Esther's DNA already, and unfortunately, they'd taken her DNA back in 2012. This really sucked, but 
just to tick their boxes, they double-checked everything and noticed that Esther's DNA had not actually been compared to Ignoto Uno's. It had been compared to Yara's because a lab technician had made a mistake and compared it to the wrong DNA. Oh my goodness. I know, which sucks so bad, but this lab technician is probably, like, testing, like, thousands of DNAs. Yeah, I mean... The amount of DNA that they were giving in, I mean, there's bound to be a couple mistakes, but like at the yeah. same time, like this Ooh. would have been caught so much earlier. Yeah, I know. So they tested it and her DNA was a match, was the maternal match to Ignoto Uno's. As investigators pieced together Esther's timeline, everything began to add up. Esther had moved away in the... 70s or so, but had kept up her affair with Giuseppe and gave birth to twins in the 1970s, a boy and a girl. The boy, now a 43-year-old construction worker and father of three, was named Massimo Giuseppe Bossetti, now lived in Mapello, the little hamlet where Yara's phone had last pinged on the day of her disappearance. And finally, they had their man. In June 2015, Ruggieri set up a fake drunk driving road roadblock road checking thing in Mapello and stopped every car coming in and out. When Massimo came through, the police officers pretended like his breathalyzer didn't work, so they got extra DNA. They bagged the breathalyzer as evidence and took it to the lab and presto, his DNA was the perfect match to Ignato Uno. Yay! Soon after, they arrested Massimo for the murder of Yara Gambarasio. After all that DNA testing, all that chasing down dead ends and family trees, Ignoto Uno had been right under their noses, like, the whole time. Ruggeri and her team were praised for finding the suspect, but they were heavily criticized for not doing a thorough DNA sweep in Yara's local area, or what people would consider thorough. If they had been more, if they had been more thorough and tested literally everyone in her local area, they might have caught the culprit much sooner. But at the same time, Ruggieri said that she never had to subpoena anyone's DNA, so Massimo might have just kind of like skirted around the DNA and never had to voluntarily give it. Yeah, that's hard to, to complain about because at the same time like um unless you like have like a subpoena like people don't have to give you their dna so they Mm -hmm. could just be like yeah i'll give it to you but i can't right now and then you think that it's fine and then they never do it yeah and also they were testing so many people's dna if he'd been like sure i'll give it but like I, i need to do it another day they might have just completely forgotten about him because they were testing so many DNA samples. Yeah, it's it's hard to get mad at that. She, They tried their hardest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So Massimo was linked to Yara's murder through his DNA and various pieces of circumstantial evidence. He was a construction worker, and the fibers of jute found on Yara's clothes were found in his van, as well as traces of Lyme that she had had in her respiratory system. Massimo spent a lot of time hanging out near Yara's house and her gym. He would often, like, park his car near the gym and hang out around there, 
apparently. I don't know doing what, but maybe the gym was also like a community center. On the night of Yara's murder, his phone pinged in Mapello at around 7 p.m., but was then turned off until the next morning. Massimo's trial began in 2015 and lasted a year, with him pleading not guilty and claiming innocence throughout the trial. Massimo was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for Yara's murder in 2016. Yara's family did not attend the trial, only appeared to provide their witness statements. In a statement given by Yara's family's lawyers, the family said, quote, Now we know who it was, even if we know that no one will bring Yara back to us, unquote. So, all in all, the investigation saw over 18,000 samples of DNA tested. One of the most expensive manhunts in Italian history. That's actually insane. 18,000? Wow. I know. So many people. After all this investigation, however, they still don't know the specifics of Yara's murder. They don't know how it happened. They don't know where it happened. They only know what evidence they could find. Because Massimo is completely, like, keeping his innocence. He's not admitting any guilt, so he's not giving out any details of how his DNA got on Yara or what happened, you know, how he essentially kidnapped Yara and murdered her. They still don't know that. The investigation revealed tons of family secrets as well. Massimo had not known who his real father was. He, like, he just thought his father was his mother's husband. And Esther, Massimo's mother, denies, like, flat out denies the affair with Giuseppe, as does Giuseppe's widow. The resulting investigation of family trees in the region also revealed other illegitimate children by other parties. Wait, before you say, wasn't there like 40 kids or something that were found to be illegitimate illegitimate to their parents? I didn't see any of that, but honestly, it sounds um, like it could be. Throughout this, it it just sounded like everyone was like a really stiff upper lip, like stiff lipped and was like, nope, nope, this is my child. Nope, I never had an affair. <laughs> and the investigators were like, but the dna they're like but now your husband is not the father and the wife's like i never had an affair i don't know what you're talking about so most importantly of course the murder took a huge part of the gambarasio's life away from them they stay and have stayed out of the media as much as possible staying private yara was buried in a cemetery across the street from her gymnastics gym her grave is often covered in flowers and that is the murder of Yara Gambarasio and the literally insane investigation that followed. That was such a good job. Yeah, that Thanks. case is crazy. I had completely forgotten all about it. Mm-hmm. The craziest thing to me was like, you know, I was, th- I was thinking of what case I would cover this week. And I remembered this one and I remembered the absolutely insane investigation that followed. But I didn't realize that that was the only information that the police had was what they had found. Like, yeah. once they caught the guy, they just caught the guy. No, It's not like it revealed any new information. Yeah, because typically sucks. when Yeah, typically when you catch the killer, you hope that you'll get the full picture and you'll get the full story. But it seems like they weren't able to do that. Yeah, when someone won't give all the information, it's like... I don't, I don't understand because it's like we have like 
exact proof. Like, why don't just, like, come clean? Because usually when you, like, admit guilty, you get lesser sentencing, you get access to parole, like, all that kind of stuff. So it would make sense to just own up to it. Yeah. From some of the other articles I read, it seemed like his defense lawyers were really going into, like, I never really considered this before, but DNA, you have to match, like, specific alleles or whatever. So his DNA was, like, a 99.9% match. And it seemed like his lawyers were trying to argue about, like, a specific allele and how it didn't match and how that was why they had the wrong DNA. And I had never really considered... I was like, oh, yeah, the DNA matches. It matches. But then I was like, well, you have to compare exactly. And his didn't, like... I think, like, in layman's terms, it exactly matched. But in a scientific terms, it was, like, 99.9% match or, like, 98% match. I'd never considered that before. I think with those kind of things, it's, like, 99.99% match. But that could be... The match could be, like, one in 500 million people could also have that DNA. So there's blank many people on the Earth who could have also matched to that DNA. But if they live around the world, then it doesn't make any sense that they could have been connected to the case. So there, there's still um, room for that it's not them. But with all the other information on, like, where the region was and... If any of those people, you know, had access or were in that area at that time, um, like, it's still kind of, like, a 100% match, but... Yeah. I don't know if the number's right, but it was, like, a 1. There was a 1 in 10 to the power of 27. So, like, like over 27 million or something. I don't know. I can't remember how (laughs) the math works. I'm so bad at math. But it was like a 1 in 10 to the power of 27 chance that it was not his DNA. Yeah, and that's a lot of people, and I'm pretty sure there's not that many people, so... Especially in the region of Italy that they were in, so... 10 to the power of 7 equals 1e plus 27. What the hell does e mean? I feel like 1e is, like, error. It's like, I can't have any more zeros on this calculator. Okay, are you ready for my case? Yeah, I'm really excited. I feel like I know which one you're gonna do, just because I know you... Love this case? Yeah. So, you tell... You go through your sources and tell me, and, and I will react in real time. Okay. Um, so... This case, I think, is, like, the thing that hooked me into true crime even more than I already was. Like, as soon as I heard this case, my mind was just, like, completely blown, and I just, like, became way more obsessed with learning about this kind of stuff. So I am covering Mary Vincent. I knew it. I knew it. I knew you're going to cover this one at some point. I was yeah. never, if I got California, I was like, 
I'm leaving this one for Tegan. Yeah, I literally just tell this story to everyone. Like, the first time I meet anyone, and, like, if they start talking about true crime, I'm like, okay, let me sit down. I'm going to tell you this. I It was funny because I basically wrote this without needing <laughs> any sources because I just know it off the top of my head. But I did use some sources. Um, so this week, Wikipedia, I bought myself an episode of I Survived. <laughs> to finally watch it because I've never actually watched it. And of course, um, my favorite murder. So let's get on into it. So on September 29th, 1978, 15-year-old runaway Mary Vincent was hitchhiking from Berkeley, California to Nevada to get back to her family. Her mother and father were separated. Her father left to work in Alaska and joined the state's Air National Guard and her mother was a blackjack dealer in uh, Las Vegas. So she was standing on the side of the road with a couple going in the same direction as her. Um, as hitchhiking was super popular in that time, and for reasons like this, it's not popular anymore, but... I think we were all, like, our generation was raised with do not hitchhike, but then, like, our parents' generation and, like, I guess boomers... We're like, oh, it's fine to hitchhike. Yeah. And then the 70s hit, and it's like, serial killers. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, they're like, don't hitchhike. <laughs> Please don't get in any cars. I see people hitchhiking now, and I'm like, okay, um, like, are you trying mm-hmm. to die? Like, it's actually... Yeah, my, like, it's very common to see hitchhikers in, in, like, smaller towns. Yeah, I can understand that, like, rural communities where you, like, know everybody, but, like, being in Vancouver mm-hmm. and seeing people on the side of Highway 1 in, like, Burnaby trying to get, hitchhike, it's just, like, what yeah. are you doing? And there's a huge problem, I mean, like, the Highway of Tears. Yeah. If you're not from bc and you don't know what the highway of tears is it's a a highway in northern bc where a whole lot of indigenous women have gone missing or have been found murdered and part of the reason is because there's no transport and if you don't have a car you kind of have to hitchhike and yeah that's you might like not your be only option by the nicest person yeah i've driven the highway of tears yeah it's it's horrible there's big signs on the side of the highway Mm -hmm. that have photos of women who have been gone missing or been found murdered and it's like girls do not hitchhike on the highway of tears yeah and it's like very very wooded like it's i think it's like a single single lane if i can remember correctly it's been a long time since i was up that way um but i think it's single lane both ways like it's very just wooded middle of nowhere kind of with like logging roads off to the side yeah so an empty van drove up to mary vincent and the couple and the man said he only had room for one the couple noticed that there was nothing in the back um and so it was very suspicious for him to only have room for one and they told her that it was not safe for her to get in this van um, unfortunately, Mary wasn't thinking, and she was very desperate to get home. And she was young, right? She was only 15, so she doesn't know the way of the world yet. Yeah, um... Exactly. I can't remember if this is completely true or if I've just made it up in my head, um, but I believe she was leaving Berkeley to, like, escape from an abusive boyfriend to get back to her family. Mm. Um... So yeah, I 
I knew she was like desperate to get in that car yeah and get back home so um yeah in the I survived she said that she could not live another day alone and that she just needed to get home um and that the man had a grandfather type figure so she thought that he could cause no harm Dude, we trust old white men way too, and just white men in general. We give them our trust immediately because we are conditioned from birth. Like in all of our media, it's always just white men. Yeah. We're conditioned from birth to trust white men. Like Santa Claus. Like you just, like, I'm pretty sure like she was just like, this man looks like Santa. He's not going to cause any harm, which. Yeah. You guys are going to find out that that's not the case. So. Another little whoopsie-daisy that Mary (laughs) did was um, during the drive, she fell asleep. Um, When she woke up, she noticed that the signs were different and they were going in the opposite direction of where they were going. Oh, that's another thing I forgot to mention. She said that she was going to um, Vegas and he wasn't going to Vegas, but he said that he would drive her all the way there. That is another red flag. If you are ever hitchhiking, which please don't do, but if someone is going to completely change their route that they're taking so that they can take you all the way to your destination, you're not going to end up at your destination. That's not where they're taking you. Um, So she had asked him what he was doing um, and told him that she knew that he knew that they were not going in the right direction. Um, so he pulled over in a culvert off the uh, Interstate 5 in Del Puerto Canyon, California, to go pee before they turned around um, so that he would start taking her in the right direction. This is when she uh, looked down at her shoes and noticed that one of her shoelaces was untied. And because she now had a bad feeling about this man, she stepped out of the van to tie her shoe so that she would be able to run. Because she was like, this man is old, uh, I'm young, he's not in good health, I'm in good health. The only thing that's going to slow me down from getting away from him is having my shoelace untied, so I need to tie my shoelace. Um, so she got out of the sh- uh, van to sh- tie her shoe, um, and this is when a sledgehammer hit her in the back of her head oh it's so horrible i know that would hurt so So, much yeah and she would be immediately disoriented yeah like immediate concussion i i will state now um that this from here on in it's gonna get a little bit gruesome um so if you're a little bit queasy you might want to skip through but we have to remember that mary survived she's telling this story to us so it's going to be gruesome because we're getting first hand account because she survived so try and hold on she makes it through so she got hit in the head with the sledgehammer blacked out when she woke up she was tied up in the back of his van this is when he started to rape her he raped her about six times he fell asleep Um, beside her and she couldn't get away because she was tied up she said she wanted to die and she said that it was the worst feeling when he woke up she kept saying please set me free let me go please set me free i won't tell anyone he had raped her through to the next day and the next morning he pulled her out of the van and said you want to be free i'll set you free and then he picked up a hatchet 
from his toolbox. He took her left arm and took one swing, and she start, She realized that she was starting to fall. She grabbed his arm, arm really tight, and he took another swing, and she looked down, and there was nothing. She felt the pain greatly, the sharpness, the hot blood flowing out of her. She was aware of about everything, and the pain was so, so excruciating. Then he grabbed onto her right arm, and she realized what he was doing, and this is when she started to kick and scream as, okay, skip 30 seconds ahead if you're grossed out. Um, as he chopped off her right arm, it took longer because she was fighting. After he had chopped off both her arms, she laid on the ground bleeding. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw him flicking his arm, and she couldn't figure out why. She realized that her arm, because she had been holding onto him so hard, her arm was still holding onto his arm, and he was flicking his arm to try and get her arm off of him. Can you imagine going through all of that and then seeing your arm not attached to your body anymore clamped onto some man's arm like oh my goodness uh yeah i can't i can't i like i honestly don't know how she survived the will and the fight and the strength that this woman has is when she was 15 15 years old so then thinking that she was dead he dragged her body and threw her off of a 30-foot cliff the fall caused her to break four ribs and her body started going into shock from the blood loss as she laid at the bottom of the embankment she started to get sleepy and cold and all she wanted to do was fall asleep but there was a voice in her head saying i can't go to sleep he is going to do this to someone else and i can't let that happen so this badass woman stuck her arm so he basically chopped her arm off from like above the elbow mm-hmm. stuck her arms into the dirt to st- try and get like the mud to like kind of like dry and caught like basically like bandage her arms yeah this this part is so like i don't know how like her instincts kicked in like it's amazing. Yeah. So he had thrown her off the cliff at the morning. She stuck her arms into the mud to stop the bleeding and crawled back up this cliff with no arms, completely naked, um, and reached the road by nightfall. So it took her the entire day to climb up this cliff with four broken ribs, no arms like amazing when she got to the road she could hear faint the faint sound of traffic so she followed the noise until daylight um the first car that stopped that or even came across her um was a she said a red car with no top it was kind of sporty looking inside were two guys who stopped and looked at her as she screamed for help Uh, mary was naked missing both of her arms and covered in blood and mud. She said, I looked out like something out of a Fright Night movie. They drove off. They did not stop and help her. Um, She thought, I'm going to die because everyone is going to be too afraid to stop and help me. 
every time I listen to this story, it's like, how did those people not help her? Yeah. Um, but it's, they probably were horrified. Yeah. Cause it's like nighttime you come across this. They probably thought like if they stopped, that would happen to them. Yeah. She, they probably thought that like it was out of a, like a horror movie. They must yeah. feel so guilty because this was all over the news now. Yeah. But she ended up walking for three miles down the middle of this road. When the second vehicle came upon her, they were a honeymoon couple who had gotten lost. Um, they put her into her, their vehicle and raced to phone and call the paramedics. Because, like, it just blows my mind because, like, we've always lived with cell phones. And, like, at this time, there were no cell phones. So they literally had, to, they couldn't call 911 and be like, hey, like, we need help. We're on the road. They had to drive back into town to find a phone that they could call. What really blows my mind is there was a time before the number 911. I know. And also, because I've kind of looked into it a little bit, I kind of like keep forgetting about it. But 911 came before 911. Like, did the terrorists choose 911 because that was the same as, like, is it just a coincidence? Yeah, when I was little, I was always, because growing up, we knew about 911. 911. I always thought it was like 911. 911 and 911 basically, like, 911 happened around the time that we were learning what 911 was. Yeah. And to yeah, call exactly. them. So, like, to me, like, those two things have always, like, correlated in my head. And I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. Same with me. Especially when we, I was, like, seven or eight. I can remember being really confused. It's like, why would they call, make the emergency line after, like, such a horrific event? Yeah. yeah that's what I thought, too. I was like, that's one way to do it. So, um, when they finally got to phone, um, she was transported to the hospital by rescue helicopter she had lost half the blood in her body and the other half had such had high levels of toxins so like surprised that she's still alive 10 days later lawrence bernard larry singleton was charged with rape and attempted murder um i believe um a sketch had gone out about him and his neighbor um recognized him and called uh, the police. Larry was born in Tampa, Florida, and he worked as a merchant seaman. Um, by the time of Larry's arrest, Mary wore prosthetic arms. Six months after the assault, Mary faced Larry at his trial, where her testimony helped convict him. He sat like 10 to 15 feet away from her the entire time that they were in court. Like, that must have been so scary. I can imagine just she would be so alert. Like, I feel like if she was on the left side of the room or whatever, he was on the right side of the room, I can imagine her entire right side would be so aware of it. Like, it would be tingling yeah. because she could feel his presence. Yeah, like like that feeling like that you get when, radiating off when you feel like someone is looking at you, like that tingle yeah. at the back of your neck. Like, yeah, she probably felt that the entire time. Yeah. And this man is truly evil. Yeah. Um, this part is really frustrating. Um, Larry was sentenced to 14 years in prison. So, less time... I don't understand! ...in prison than she was alive on this earth. People get more than that 
for for getting caught with like a gram of marijuana on them. Yeah, it it like it actually blows my mind. This was the maximum allowed in by law in California at the time. The presiding judge remarked, if I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. When testifying was over, Larry walked past Mary and said to her, if it's the last thing I do, I will finish this job. He should get another 30 years just for that. (laughs) Like, could you imagine knowing that he's only going to serve 14 years in jail and he's threatened to finish the job once he gets out? Like, I don't, I had I don't know how it'd function. Yeah. (laughs) This is where it gets even more aggravating. (laughs) Released from prison on good behavior after serving eight years of his 14-year sentence, he was able to reduce his time through good behavior and working as a teaching assistant in the prison classroom. Because at that time, um, so during that time, every day that you worked in the prison, they took a day off of your sentence. That shouldn't be allowed. No. Okay, so let's do every day that we work, they take a day off our retirement. That would be great. So I've worked, you know, a year. Or put a day on your retirement, accruing more retirement. Every day that you work, you get another vacation day. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So... Anger and fear of Larry was heightened with his prison release in April and exacerbated by his subsequent written claim of innocence that forms an incredible psychological denial that he was the victim, that he was kidnapped and held by threats, that Mary Vincent actually had been maimed by two others, not him. I love when um, the aggressor just... Oh, there were two other guys there. They just make up another person. It's like, okay, buddy. That's not how this works, actually. I'm pretty sure the victim would not try to save the other two guys and blame it all on you. Yeah. (sighs) So, obviously, Mary was terrified that he had been released earlier than what she was expecting him to. um, And her life basically crumbled around her. Um... At this time, she's not even 25. Yeah. Because he hasn't even spent 10 years in prison. She's like 23. Mm-hmm. That's a lot for that's a lot for a 15-year-old. That's a lot for a 23-year-old. Yeah. This is my favorite part of the story. I think this is really, like, this is really what, like, the piece de resistance. This is what I love about this. So Singleton was paroled to Contra Costa Contra Costa County, California, but no town would accept his presence. According to the time, as authorities attempted to settle him in one Bay Area town after another, angry crowds and Tampa's chapter of Guardian Angels led protests, screamed, picketed, and eventually prevailed. In Rodeo, about 25 25 miles northeast of San Francisco, a crowd of approximately 500 local protesters were up in arms and forced officers to move him um, under armed guard from a hotel room. Authorities tried housing him across the street from Concord's City Hall, but that was also met by a protest and failed too. He was removed from an apartment in Contra Costa 
County in a bulletproof vest after 400 residents surrounded the building at, to protest a decision to place him there permanently. You said guardian angels. Are those the guys? Is that like the biker gang that um, advocates against child abuse? Um, I believe that they're like a they they were a vigilante group. Um, yeah, in, yeah, that's it. In Florida, so they had sent him. They had sent him like all around Contra Costa County, couldn't relocate him. So they sent because he was from Florida. They sent him down to Tampa, and that's when the Tampa chapter of Guardians led this massive protest. So they're like, "Whoop, can't send him here." So they brought him back to Contra Costa, and tried to relocate him a whole bunch of other times, and none of that worked because, um, one town, the mayor actually put a restraining order against him so that he couldn't even come into the town. The mayor. Yeah. That's so funny. So the governor of California, George Dukmanjen, I should have looked up how to pronounce his name, um, ordered that Singleton to be placed in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin during the duration of his one-year parole. So he wasn't in prison, but he had to live on prison grounds for a year. So rejected by communities wherever he sought to live, isolated death threats, and offered of a one-way ticket out of Florida, and now, almost ironically, a full media pursuit has forced him into hiding. So they, everyone was just all over him. The outrage of his sentence resulted in legislation supported by Mary Vincent, which prevents the early release of offenders who have committed a crime in which torture is used. In 1987, Singleton's parole led to passage of California's Singleton Bill, which carries a 25 years to life sentence. So Mary has like just like gone on to like make sure that he could never do this to anybody else. So the leniency of the legal system shocked and outraged many. Right before Singleton's parole ended, Donald Stahl, the Stanilis County prosecutor at Singleton's trial said, I think if anything, he's worse now. He has not taken responsibility. He lives in a bizarre fantasy land and acquits himself each day. He doesn't accept his guilt and won't resolve to never do it again. I feel like in his mind, he's gotten away with it because it's like, yeah, he got caught and sentenced, but his sentence was nothing. I also don't think that that's the first time that he's ever done that. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no way. This is the first time that he's been caught for doing something along the lines of this. Yeah. Because Singleton returned to his native Florida after his release. In 1990, he was twice convicted of theft. He served a 60-day sentence for stealing a $10 disposable camera. And in spring of 1990, uh, in the spring of 1990, and in the winter, he received a two-year prison term for stealing a $3 hat. Um, so let's just do some quick maths here. Um, two years for a $3 hat. So eight years times $3. Mary's life was worth $24. Whoa. This is in the 70s or the 80s? 90s. 90s? Yeah. Oh my god. So he received two years for sent, uh, for stealing the $10 hat in 1990, but the crime happened in 1978. So before his sentencing for the latter crime, 
He described himself to the judge as a confused, muddle-headed old man. Sorry, I didn't realize that I didn't pay for the hat. I'm just a confused, muddle-headed old man. On February 19th, 1997, a neighbor called the police to report Larry assaulting a woman in his home in Sulphur Springs, Florida. When the police responded to the call, they knocked on his front door and he opened the door covered in blood. Uh, Inside, they found the body of Roxanne Hayes. She had been stabbed, I believe, 17 times in the head. Um, Hayes was a sex worker and a mother of three. Actually, let me rephrase that. She was a mother of three, and she worked as a sex worker to support her family. Mm. Uh, Also, when people get stabbed in the head, you have a skull. That must really hurt. That must require a lot of force. Yeah. So Mary traveled to from California to Tampa, Tampa to appear at Larry's sentencing. During her testimony, she described Larry's attack and the toll the ordeal had taken on her. Um, the judge sentenced Larry to death um, for the murder of um, Roxanne Hayes. Um, Larry passed away, or he was sentenced to death, but he did not, um, die because of his sentencing. Like, he didn't get the electric chair. He died in 2001, um, of cancer in the prison hospital at North Florida Reception Center in Stark, Florida. And that is the harrowing survival story of Mary Vincent and of the disgusting Larry Singleton. Good job. That story is so, so horrible. And then Mary Vincent is so strong. I believe she has um, a victim's fund. Um, so we can put that up on Instagram. Um, so yeah. if you want to support her or anyone else who has had um, ass- been assaulted, Um, in similar circumstances that her um, foundation looks after, we can definitely put that up. But yeah, this this case just, like, blows my mind every single time I think about it. How? Every part, attack, brutal, blow your mind. Her surviving, her climbing up that hill with four broken ribs and no arms. Mind-blowing. Him only getting 14 years, blowing your mind. Him then getting released for eight years, blowing your mind. And then all the towns refusing to have him there and rallying against him. It's insane. It, it, yeah, mind-blowing. Absolutely insane. Um, I, I've actually never watched an episode of I Survived before. Um, so it was kind of cool because there's three stories that they tell in one episode. So it kind of tells part of the story leaves you at a cliffhanger and then it jumps to the next story so it was kind of cool and there was another woman's um on that episode who um her boyfriend was like um was assaulting and harassing her and like she tried to leave him and he would just like assault and like harass her family and her um younger sister had like just like her husband had just her younger sister's husband had like recently died and she had cancer and like they had she had two kids and so like she went back to her boyfriend because she wanted 
her family to stop being like harassed because like her sister was going through so much and he ended up like said that he was taking her out on a date went to this house bought a whole bunch of cocaine started doing all this cocaine and then took her out into the middle of the woods and took like this like three inch razor blade and just slit her neck and started stabbing her and went back to the apartment building that he went to buy the cocaine and he was like if you leave like i'm going to kill you so she's sitting in the car like bleeding out he goes into this apartment she then goes she gets out of the car she's like i'm gonna die either way so at least like i should like try and save my life um and she's like banging on all these doors trying to let someone to let her in and nobody's letting her in and then she notices that there's an apartment building with its window open so she jumps through the window into this apartment like absolutely covered in blood because she had been stabbed over 50 times at this point. The doctor lost track of how many stab wounds she had. Jumped in and there was these two men sitting in the apartment. Neither of them spoke any English and they picked her up and put her, like walked her back to the door and she was outside again. And she was like, I'm literally going to die because no one will help me. And then um she's like banging around like other doors hiding under a stairwell and then the police show up so she runs over to the cop car and she's like please don't let me die and got sent to the hospital but the men who um this window she had jumped through you're not supposed to be here let's put you back outside they were the ones who called 911 oh okay it's like oh we don't want you in here but we'll call 911 what the heck like, she's obviously running from something yeah attempted uh break and enter please come and then this lady's like please don't let me die so there's some like really crazy stories um i think i think i've seen one episode and it was like there were a couple stories one was like a shark survival story and then one was a story that i think was also covered on my favorite murder uh but it was like a story about these two guys that were camping in the woods yes and then don't talk about this story anymore because i want to cover it okay, okay <laughs> if okay. we ever do it again okay. or if i pull that area but everyone on i survived always just talks so like this guy was just talking so matter-of-factly about how he survived and he's like yeah or like the guy who escaped the shark attack he was like yeah like then the shark bit me and i was losing a lot of blood and you know i thought i was gonna die but then i survived they're all so calm i would be like in tears like on the ground yeah well i guess they've they've had a lot of time to process it before going on i survived and telling their story and they probably told it a lot of like a lot of times yeah crazy okay on to happy things so i had a couple complaints Uh, that we didn't have a Harry Styles update in our last episode. And I said, I think it might be too raw and emotional for (laughs) Tegan. uh, Because he's rumored to be dating Olivia Wilde. I don't have any updates because I'm trying to avoid (laughs) at all costs. This is just make-believe in my head right now. So I'm sorry, no updates on Harry. Yeah, well, I have an update, like a life update. Um my family right now 
my two little sisters and my parents have gone to pick up our puppy. Yay! So excited. I know. Her name is Bentley, and she is an Aussie doodle, so she is an Australian shepherd mixed with a poodle. And she looks so sweet. I'm getting photos. Uh, Let me send one to you, Tegan, so you can see. Okay. Uh, I'm so excited. This is the best birthday present for you, actually. Yeah, I know. I made, like, a little kahoot, like a a Megan trivia for my family last night and it was like what is the what is you um what will be megan's favorite gift and it had a bunch of options but one of the options was bentley and most people clicked bentley so i was like um so you all agree she's my birthday present (laughs) and she was like no i need to go back and switch my answer is adorable like are you kidding me right now megan she's so cute we'll post a photo on our instagram and maybe next week we'll introduce her to the podcast get her to sniff into the microphone or something that would be so cute yeah oh you know what my sisters were also complaining that there were no kitten interruptions on our last couple episodes okay well i'm not sure if you could hear timothy in the background this entire episode let me see oh i see a kitten i see a little kitty why are you being like this he looks like he does not want anything to do with you right now yeah, sorry. Timothy did want, not want to make an appearance today. Um, he's a little vocal shy, if you will. Um, so, I know. I'm just failing on all sides on this end. Yeah. Um, so, since it's Aquarius season, I want to talk about conspiracy the- uh, theories again. Because okay. I saw a conspiracy theories since our last episode that literally has blown my mind. Um, so the conspiracy theory is that Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, is actually Fidel Castro's son. I'm surprised that you just saw this now. I just saw it this week and I love it. I love it. It makes so much sense. Um, so for people who have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, the conspiracy theory is that about eight and a half months before... Justin Trudeau was born. The then prime minister, his father, Pierre Trudeau, and Pierre Trudeau's wife, I can't remember her name, unfortunately, I'm sorry, but they went on a, like, Caribbean holiday and are rumored to have gone to Cuba to meet Fidel Castro. And then eight and a half months later, Justin Trudeau was born and... Uh, then when he was young, they went back to Cuba or to Cuba for the first time, quote unquote, because they didn't officially go there, but they looked like they were old friends with Fidel Castro and Fidel Castro is, is photographed like holding, uh, Justin Trudeau and like looking very fatherly. And it's kind of like well known that Fidel Castro has fathered a lot of, like he said, he's fathered a lot of children, um, that like he doesn't have just like with random women and then if you look at a photo of justin trudeau next to fidel castro they look very similar their faces are very similar like they've got the same nose they've got the same shape of face same jaw and i've always thought that justin trudeau looks nothing like pierre trudeau no nothing at all yeah 
Who knows? Who knows? So, Tegan, do you have any plans for your birthday? No. (laughs) (laughs) Coronavirus. Um, Yeah, coronavirus. Uh, I will have to say, though, that um, as of last year, today, Megan and I were in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. First time in Europe for me. It was amazing what I would give to be back there right now, traveling and loving our lives. Megan and I have just made a new pack that every two years we're going to go away for our birthday. So next year, 2022, 2022. birthday um, trip. Yeah. Hopefully. hopefully. We'll have, pardon? I said hopefully. Fingers crossed. Oh, I thought you said Italy. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, sure. Um, hopefully we'll have the vaccine by then because the BC government rolled out their vaccine. And guess what? We turned 25 this year, which means we're phase three. Otherwise, we would have been phase, phase four and later on. So we get the vaccine <laughs> <laughs> sometime that's... between July and September, hopefully. Wow. That's crazy. I Man, I just need the vaccine so badly so I can go see Harry Styles in concert. Oh, my God. I was supposed to see him twice last year. So many people lost fun things that they were going to do, which, I mean, it's not the worst thing to lose. It's just, like, an event. Yeah. Because you could lose a lot worse. But. Yeah. But still, that was the only thing that was keeping me alive. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the only thing that was keeping me alive. And now um, Harry has started to date Olivia Wilde. Uh, the betrayal. I know. You were so loyal to him. And then he goes and does this. I have been so loyal to him. Like, ridiculously loyal. My sisters were complaining that there was no Harry Styles update. And um, they're like, I'm waiting. I need to know where where he is in the world right now. And my mom was there. She's like, I don't wait for the Harry Styles update. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) I just just listen for Tegan's book update because I really like that. And then Aaron and Laura, my little sisters, were like, well, it will, like, do you even know who Harry Styles is? Because he is, like, an icon of our generation. And and my mom was like, yeah, he was in the Backstreet Boys, right? <laughs> no, we no, like, no, 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 no. She's like, oh, he's the one from NSYNC. <laughs> <laughs> also, no. I'm getting closer, but no. One Direction. Um, well, um, Kathy, if you're listening to this right now, um, most of my book suggestions that I give and reviews come from um, suggestions from our one true love, Harry Styles. So, so mom, if you don't like the gossip updates, listen for the brain updates. Yeah. Um, I actually, my book that I read this week was not um, from Harry Styles. Um, it was a book of poetry called She must be mad and it is from uh, written by charlie cox and charlie cox was on the first episode of good influence with Gemma styles so a little Mm. bit of connection there um really really enjoyed the poetry it was four different categories um she must be in love she must be uh fat she must be um an adult and um she must be mad um so it kind of takes you through four different areas so um talking about young love talking about dealing with body issues dealing with 
being an adult and issues with dealing with mental health issues. So it's a really great book. Um, I've now moved on to Wuthering Heights. I'll have to post a picture of it. My sister got me the most beautiful book for Christmas. Um, I absolutely love it. I can't wait to start reading it. So I'll keep you updated on my Wuthering Heights. Mm-hmm. Have you read it before? No, I've not. Yeah, this is my first time reading um, a Bronte sister book. I've read Austin Sisters, um, but I've not never read it. Um, I think it's Emily Bronte who wrote this one. I don't know. So I don't know. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I started reading the book that you gave me uh, about Ted Bundy. Yeah. The all no not all be gone into the dark. That's about uh, the Golden State Killer. Uh, the, stranger the stranger beside, beside me. me. Yeah, and have you read it? No. Okay, it's so far it's really good. It's very intriguing. Um, but she opens like so it was originally published in nineteen eighty nine or so, and then she wrote like an updated version or like she wrote updated passages in two thousand and nine. So that's the one that you got me with the updated passages. And she kind of talks about all of the women that have contacted her and emailed her since she wrote the book in 1989 to say oh I actually had a run-in with Ted Bundy and this is what happened and there's like she's like a lot of them I don't believe were Ted but some of them I do honestly believe were Ted and it talks about like this one woman who lived in Seattle in like the university district and like her she like forgot her car keys went up back into her apartment to get them and like her friend stayed by the car and then when she came back her friend was being like attacked by this some guy and it and then it's like oh we never reported it though because we like were young and naive and because nothing actually happened we didn't think that it was actually a problem yeah uh, and then they saw the, his photo in the newspaper and were like, that's that guy. That's and insane. Yeah, it's it, there's like five or six that she talks about. And it's like, so, it's like really crazy. I also rewatched the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix and I completely forgot that the judge who oversaw his trial in Florida, like the murder trial of the sorority um, sisters. At the end of the trial, now this is the trial that he uh, defended himself. Refused any defense and like his lawyers quit and then he like defended himself for the end. And then he proposed to his girlfriend on the stand? That was the next one. Oh. The murder of the 14-year-old girl. I can't remember her name. Hey, it's editing Megan. Uh, her name is Kimberly Leach, and she was only 12, not 14. But the judge of the first trial was like, you know, I, I respect you. I hold no ill will toward you. You know, you're a bright young man, and it would have been great to have you as a lawyer, like, in my court. And I was like, do not say that. That is disgusting. Yeah. Um. I think the craziest fact that I know about Ted Bundy is just how, like, like it just goes to show how, like, sociopathic and bitter and, like, conniving this man was. But he was dating someone before 
Elizabeth, and he had, she had broken up with him, and he got really upset that they broke up. And so he decided that he was going to become a lawyer to, like, try and impress her and win her back and blah, 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 blah. While he's dating Diz, while he's dating Liz, um, he reconnects with this woman, starts having a relationship with her um, while he's in a relationship with Liz. um, And then he proposes to this woman (laughs) that was the other, the one that broke his heart. And she said yes. And then he straight up ghosted her. Like, he walked out of her life and never came back again. And um, all the women that he has murdered um, has looked like the that woman who broke his heart. Yeah. Like... And it, it wasn't, like, a bad breakup or anything. Like, the... I'm at that part of the book where they first break up. And they broke up because she was a year older and he was still in university and she, you know, was in Washington for university and had always planned to go back to San Francisco, which is where her parents lived and where she was from. And he just like showed up at her work one day and like was like, look at me, I'm in law school or I'm going to go to law school or whatever. And kind of just like trying to tried to get her back a little bit. And she was just like polite and it's like, no, thank you. Like, nice to see you though. And so it wasn't like she was mean to him. He just couldn't take any rejection and thought that he, like, I don't know, she owed him. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely insane. The lengths that he went to. Um, yeah. So other than that, we'll catch you on the flip side. We'll pull some... On the flippity flip, and let's pull some countries. Okay, Tegan. Where am I going? You were going to Turkey. Ooh, my mom is going to love that. Her, <laughs> yeah, I was like, your mom's gonna be happy about her that. Her favorite place in the world is Turkey. I think she she loves Turkey. Where's Megan going? I'm going to Hong Kong. Ooh. So I just did China. And now I'm going to Hong Kong. That's crazy. All right. Should we wrap it up? Yeah. Happy birthday, Tegan. Happy belated birthday, Megan. Yeah, I guess it'll be belated for you as well by the time we uh, post this. Uh, Wish us a happy birthday by rate reviewing and subscribing. Following us on Instagram at Destination Murder Pod. Yep. There's so many ways to say happy birthday. So many ways. (laughs) I love birthdays. Uh, Okay, well, in American, I'm going to say goodbye, y'all. In Italian? (laughs) Ciao. Ciao, Bella. See you next week. We'll be back to our regular scheduled programming. Where are you going? You're going to Turkey, and I'm going to Hong Kong. Yeah. I'll already catch you on the flip side, skater dudes. (laughs) Ciao.